So we're in a series on uh, a good and beautiful God. And Pastor Kurt has covered the first two attributes, God is good and God is trustworthy. Uh, Today we come to an amazing attribute of his, God is generous. In fact, the scripture is so full of passages that show the generosity of God, we could do an entire series on this topic alone. So this morning I'm going to focus on just two of the biblical concepts related to God's generosity. Um, So we're going to dive right in. Here are your first blanks. Generosity precept number one. God's generosity is absolutely free for us, but infinitely costly for him. As we begin, I'd like us to, in fact, turn to Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bibles. I'd like us to to think about three very familiar parables, uh, just a complete overview and a few details in the third that comes from Luke 15. Um, The first is the parable of the lost sheep. In this story, the shepherd has 100 sheep, one goes missing, he leaves the 99, goes and searches, brings it back, and at the end calls his friends to celebrate. Number two is the parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10, she loses one, she searches and searches, she scours her home, and she finally finds it, and she calls her friends, and they celebrate. The third is the parable of the lost son. The prodigal son is probably what you know it as. And in this parable, the younger of the two sons demands that his father give him his inheritance, and then he leaves home and he spends, this, spends it, of course, on licentious living. Probably everyone, almost everyone in our culture at least knows this story. Then having ruined his life, he becomes utterly desperate. So he comes home. But in a completely unexpected response, the father immediately receives him back and he calls his friends together and celebrates. Amazing parallels. There's one striking difference that we're going to come back to in a minute. But I want to focus first on the implication of the story of the prodigal son that's often been missed. After the younger brother had wa- uh, wasted all his inheritance and had come back to the end, kind of to the end of himself, here's what happened. Luke 15, starting with verse 17, it'll be on the screen too. But when he came to his senses, isn't that interesting? Uh, life has a way of doing that when we go our own way, doesn't it? But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so that, he rehearses that. That's exactly what he does when he comes home and he repents to his father. The younger brother now fully recognizes that he no longer has any claim to the family. Yet amazingly enough, Even though he intended to make complete restitution by becoming a simple servant, rather than a son, the father wouldn't hear of it. He immediately receives him back into the family. And this has led to some, some to misinterpret this passage. Notice the correct interpretation, one of them, highlights the fact that the younger brother's acceptance back into the family came at no cost. It was completely free. But here's where some theologians go wrong. Some theologians therefore say, 
There's no need for atonement. There's no need for repentance. There's no need for atonement. They take this part of the parable and they go on to incorrectly make a dangerous oversimplification. And this is in your notes. Write it in. Here's your blanks. Here's the oversimplification. The gospel teaches that, the, that true forgiveness and love are always free and unconditional. That's a disastrous oversimplification. It has led to the wrong conclusion of the story of the prodigal son with, the, with this, and let me correct that with this key concept. Forgiveness is always costly to someone. Real forgiveness is always costly. Now, this is easy to illustrate. Say someone borrows your car, gets in a crash. You have two options at first. You decide to have them pay for the repairs or their insurance. Or you can forgive what they owe you, in which case you now have two choices. Either you can drive it mangled and lose the value in the car, big cost, or you can pay for the repairs yourself. Okay, that, those are your two options. Uh, think about it. Um, this is important. Uh, with this concept in mind, let's ask who paid the price of the younger brother's return. I had never really thought about this until a year ago or so, and I started pondering this as I was thinking about this passage. I'm going to do this by considering the three parables in Luke 15 again. Now, the similarities between the three story are, uh, stories are obvious, right? Something's lost, a sheep, a coin, a son. In each parable, the one who loses something finally gets it back. And in each, the story ends with celebration for the lost one that's returned. But in the last parable, there's one striking difference. Unlike the parables of the sheep and the coin, no one goes searching for the lost son. If someone who had never heard Luke 15 read these stories for the first time in a row, when they came to the last parable, they would fully expect to have someone go out searching for the lost son, just like the sheep, just like the coin, but no one did. And this startling difference, difference reveals how brilliant Jesus is at using simple stories to il illustrate an incredibly deep theological truth. He wants his listeners to ponder the fact that someone should have gone searching for the younger brother. And since this crowd knew the Hebrew Scriptures, all the way back to when God answered Cain's question, am I my, my brother's keeper? My younger brother, am I his keeper? And the, the text clear, is clear, yes. The older brother is the younger brother's keeper. So they would have all known that, and so they would have known that it was the older son's responsibility to take up the search and bring his younger brother home. But not only does he fail to go searching for his brother, as you know, when the brother comes home, he is really angry. Turn to verse 28 with me. See, when the father has the audacity to throw a party for the younger brother, the older brother goes ballistic. Look at verse 28. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered the father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might marry be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, notice he doesn't even acknowledge him as a brother. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, I don't know about you, 
But it's easy for me to condemn the older brother as a horrible attitude, right? Um, I think this is most people's reaction since the common teaching of this passage focuses on the incredible grace and love that the father shows. It's an incredible part of the story. Despite the fact that the younger brother has sinned and ruined his life, the father's mercy is astounding. It warms our heart. We're really glad about that part of the story. I certainly am. So the older brother seems selfish and mean. But before we slam the older brother for his unmerciful attitude, we need to know something about the inheritance laws of the day. In that culture, the eldest son received twice as much of the family inheritance as the other sons. So in this situation, two-thirds of the father's wealth belonged to the older brother and one-third to the younger brother. But remember, at this point, the younger brother has already taken his third from the family. And so if you don't understand how estates were settled in that day, you might think that the older brother is just being petty. But look what has happened to the family's wealth. One-third of it has been liquidated and completely squandered by the wayward brother. And yet, after his rebellion and irresponsibility, the father has given him a fine robe, a valuable ring, and a very expensive party with rare precious beef as the main course. But the father has done far more than just those three things. See, he brought the younger brother back into the family, not as a servant or as a worker, but with full rights. The father has entirely restored both his standing and his inheritance. So now, you might have heard that before, and we think, we think oh Lord, thank you so much. You give it, we, we don't have to work our way back in. You give us full inheritance no matter how far we've gone. But notice this. Why is it such a big deal for the older brother? Because it's only at the older brother's expense that the younger brother can be brought back into the family. The younger brother's portion is gone, but the father is restoring his inheritance anyway. So look at this. Here's the impact of the prodigal's restoration. Here's your blank. When the father restores the younger brother's inheritance, it costs the older brother one-third of his. Did you get that? Already squandered his third, now the father brings him back in full on, and out of the two-thirds that belong to the older brother, now another third will be taken to be given full inheritance. Listen to Timothy Keller's insight on this situation from his book, The Prodigal God. It'll be up on the screen. Look at this insight. When the father said to the older brother, my son, everything I have is yours, he was telling the literal truth. Remember, he's having this interaction with the older brother, and, and the father says, oh, all that I have is yours. That's actually literally true now because only two-thirds is left, and it's all the older brothers. But look at, uh, look at this insight. Every penny that remained of the family estate belonged to the elder brother. The robe, every robe, every ring, every fatted calf was now his by right. The father is taking the older brother's wealth and giving it to that lousy scoundrel. Can you imagine? Um, so the cost of the older brother is much greater than it seems on the surface. So now let's return to the oversimplified erroneous theology. It's true that mercy and forgiveness must be free to the wrongdoer. In fact, if it's not free, if they have to earn it, it's not grace, right? It's not mercy. 
So it has, by definition, mercy has to be free to the wrongdoer. Um, If they have uh, to do something to merit it, it's not grace. But here's the catch. Here's your blank. Forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one who's granting it. Some of you right now are thinking about high prices you've paid as God has helped you forgive others. It was free to them, but oh, it might have been very costly to you. Forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one who's granting it. So as surely as the parable of the prodigal son shows how free the father's forgiveness is to the sinner, it also shows its costliness. The younger brother's restoration was free to him, but it came at an enormous price to the older brother. So, of course, Jesus now brilliantly finishes the parable without a resolution. The older brother had no intention of providing providing grace. So the parable is incomplete. And here's what's missing. It needs an older brother who does go out at his own risk, at his own inconvenience, and searches out the younger brother. And then... After he finds him, he should bring him home to the family at his own cost, and then he should lead the celebration. He should call the neighbors to the party. That's the kind of older brother that this story needs. But no such older brother shows up. And so one of the incredible points of the parable is that Jesus is the true elder brother. Jesus is the missing brother in the story. And here we see God's amazing generosity. You see, when Jesus paid the price for us to come home, it wasn't just money or property as the case of the parable. It was at an infinite cost of his own life. We just drank the symbol of his blood and ate the symbol of his body. It wasn't just a third of some large inheritance. It was everything. So here's the key concept. Write it in. The greatest generosity ever was the father's willingness to freely give his son and the son's willingness to freely give his life. There is no generosity in all of history that's like our God. So now with this background, we can just begin to understand generosity precept number one. Here it is again. You can look up in your notes if you wrote it in, right? God's generosity is absolutely free for us but infinitely costly for him. And now we're ready to look at the dramatic difference between the biblical understanding of God's generosity and every other system of human thought. You'll see this is true of secular uh, worldviews and of all other religious worldviews, the dramatic difference, and it comes in generosity precept number two. Here it is. Write it in. In the world and in religion, you get what you work for and you're rewarded for your performance. In the world and in every other religion except the scripture, you, are, you get what you work for and you're rewarded for your performance. Now to illustrate this precept and to contrast it to God's amazing generosity, I'd like us to look at a man who lived nearly 3,000 years ago. Turn back to about, oh, it's about a quarter of the way into your Bible to 2 Kings, so once you get to the Samuels and the Kings and the Chronicles, it's in the middle of the Samuels and the Kings and the Chronicles, 2 Kings chapter 5, and as we pick up the story, we're introduced to an individual that 
maybe many of you have never heard of before, but he is absolutely renowned in his time. He has a high stature in his society. In fact, the the writer of the text here makes sure that it starts off with that as he's introduced. So look at this, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, meaning the king, and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. And the man was also a valiant warrior. So Naaman has it all. Listen to this. We can already see him in the rest of the story. We find out he had fame, position, renown, strength, acclaim, military prowess. And as we'll see, he also had enormous wealth. But Naaman had a problem. Look at the verse again. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected for because of him by the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Hmm. So here we have this amazing person, great success in the world's eyes, and yet he's got a disease that won't just waste away his body till he dies, but it'll also steal his renown and make him an outcast in the society where he now is the right hand of the king. Look at verse 2. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands, so they were going into Israel, had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. So this little child has been brought in as a a servant slave of Naaman's wife. And uh, she said, it's bad when you've written so much in your, uh, uh, my text has covered the the real text, don't do that in your Bible. Um, So... (laughs) She said, I wish my master, the little girl said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. So this little Israelite girl tells Naaman's wife that he should go to Samaria to see the prophet so he can be cured. But notice what actually happens when Naaman hears this from his wife, look what Naaman actually does. Uh, verse 4, And Naaman went and told his master, the king, saying, Thus spoke the, the girl from this land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him, look at all this, ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. This is a boatload of money, Right? And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Notice what happens. Naaman lives in a world where what matters is power and position and strength. And you get access to the blessings of power by being successful and victorious, by hiring lobbyists. Some things never change, right? That's how you get access to the powerful and the blessings of power. So since his success has given him access to the king, he had a better idea than going to some lowly religious figure for help. He gets a letter of reference from the highest authority in his country to take to the highest authority in Israel. And just to make sure that he's successful in the transaction, he takes a bunch of gold and silver with him to seal the deal. So here's what he expects. 
The king of Israel will be impressed. He'll take the gold, and then he'll command the prophet to heal him. In other words, he thought that he could use his achievements, success, and money to deal with his problems. Let me say that again. He thought he could use his achievements, success, and money to deal with his problems. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly how the whole world works, right? But his plan backfired. The king of Israel knows that God doesn't work that way. God isn't impressed with success or talent or performance. He's not impressed with power or position or wealth. So the king thinks this may actually be some kind of setup, and so he sends Naaman away in anger. So Naaman's attempt to work through the societal power brokers doesn't work. The approach that has helped him, think about this, all through his life, this has helped him to climb the ladder, has now hit a wall. This plan doesn't work in this strange country. So now, think about it. He's basically used the secular power plan. Now he's, as a last resort, willing to use the religious plan. That starts in verse 8. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come, in to, come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood in the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, notice that, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Now, take a step back. Look what's happened to Naaman. He has swallowed his pride, stooped so low as to go to some local preacher whose name he doesn't even know. And now when he gets there, the prophet doesn't even show him the courtesy of talking to him. <laughs> Instead, he simply sends his servant to the door and tells him what to do. The mighty Naaman who converses with kings, is essentially completely ignored by the prophet, and now he stands like a beggar at his front door. He's being disrespected by a nobody in Nowheresville. And we're going to see in a minute how, by the way, that, will, that, does, that is not in spell check. I've made it up. Um, so look at Naaman's response to this snub, verse 11. But Naaman was furious, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought, at first, he, he, here's the Merlin hocus-pocus thing he was expecting, right? Um, uh, he, he, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and he will wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Hmm, nope, okay. Now he points to how lousy the rivers are in Israel. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. <laughs> I love how this story unpacks an amazing number of things. Given his worldview, think about it. His reaction is predictable, right? He's snubbed, a servant tells him what to do, and all he does is say, go wash in the river. Um, but, but it's also incredibly revealing about some profound truths. If you're looking for it, the content of Naaman's reaction actually reveals the essential difference between the Bible's understanding of God, don't miss it, and every other philosophical system, secular or religious. 
You see, Naaman lives in a world where everything you get comes on the basis of achievement. And that's true whether you're religious or not. You, can, you get what you earn, so Naaman knows the rules. And here are the two rules of the world, and interestingly enough, the rules are still the same. Here's secular rule number one. Write it in. In the world, your value is in your talents and your achievements. Secular rule number one. In the world, your value is in your talents and your achievements. And religious rule number one, in every world religion, you earn divine blessing through what you do. In every world religion, you earn divine blessing through what you do. But now, Naaman's confronted with an inconceivable concept. Think about this. Elisha, he, he, he knows both rule number ones. But Elisha, rather than showing honor to this great leader, is totally unimpressed with what he's done. He considers Naaman's renown and his status irrelevant. And he dishonors his greatness by sending a lowly servant to speak to him. And the next part of the passage is completely out of step with every other worldview that has ever existed in history. Listen to the next few verses. Verse 13. Then his servant, servants came and spoke to him. Naaman's servants now are coming to him. And they said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing? Isn't this interesting? Had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? But now, much more when he says, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. So Naaman experiences an extraordinary miracle of healing. But his response to his healing reveals how deeply embedded in the human psyche this concept is. Listen, you get what you work for. You get what you pay for. That is so deeply embedded in the whole history of humanity, secular and religious, he still doesn't get it. So look at verse 15. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, so now he's healed. Now look what he does. He came and stood before him and he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so please take a present from your servant now. And look at Elisha's response. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. In this interaction, Elisha blows up Naaman's entire understanding of how the world works. He also takes out every last vestige of Naaman's pride. Think of this. He rejects his attempt to try to pay for his healing. The God of Elisha has removed the horrible curse of leprosy for free. The prophet's generosity is absolutely unknown in Naaman's experience. The world just isn't like that. You get what you pay for. You get what you work for. You get what you deserve in this world. And here's a holy man who freely passes out healing and blessing. No offering. No sacrifice. No payment. No nothing. That's right. Totally different than all of the rest of the history of world thought. 
totally, completely free. And when Elisha refused to take anything from Naaman, he removed his last chance that he could go back home and say that he had anything to do with fixing his own problem. For the first time in Naaman's life, he didn't earn what he got. None of this came to him because of his hard work or his achievements. It didn't come because of his success or his talents, his position or his power. In other words, it didn't require Naaman to do any great thing. In fact, it required him to do nothing at all except respond to the blessing. It wasn't until this moment when Elisha refused any payment that Naaman finally understood. It finally sunk in. God didn't heal him because of anything he did. He healed him out of sheer mercy. God, listen church, God doesn't follow the secular world's rule and God doesn't follow the religious world rule. God is completely different than all of it. So here's the amazing, our God, the amazing rule breaker. He breaks the rules. Look at this. Write it in. In the upside-down kingdom, the gospel explodes the secular and religious rules and teaches that we're blessed because of who God is. Not because of what we do. Not because of how good we are. Not because of our works. Not because of our good things. We are blessed because of who our God is. What a generous God. He spreads his gifts and his blessings and his healing all over the world. His generosity is given freely. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. Think of this. When God gave Naaman a spectacular and complete healing, and when his prophet wouldn't take a penny in return, God was declaring a profound spiritual reality that is absolutely unique among all religions. And this dramatic difference goes far beyond just his physical healing. This is a picture of the feeling of the healing of his whole self, right? This is a picture of God's plan for salvation. This is really a salvation story, making every part of Naaman's life whole. So here's an absolutely unique salvation. I think this is your last blank. In every religion in the world, salvation comes by, think of what happened in the story, if he had asked you to do something great, you'd have done it, right, Naaman? In fact, that's what Naaman expected. Pay off. Big thing. You have to go do something. You have to, you know, bring back the, bring back the broomstick of the witch, wicked witch of the, west, witch of the West, right? Do something great. Look at this. In every world religion, salvation comes by doing some great thing. But in the God of the Bible, he says, just wash. In every other religion, you have to work to be good. You have to earn your standing. You have to achieve righteousness by obeying rules and regulations. You please the deity by doing holy things in every other religion. But when a person is finally willing to lay down their pride, listen church, and we lay down our claim to the good things we've done, the one true God says, oh, what a dream. He says, just wash, just receive the gift of the shed blood of my son, and you will be clean. Listen to what God says. 
Stop trying to make yourself holy. Stop trying to work yourself into righteousness. God says, just rest in me and be clean. I change you from the inside out. So now, because you're a fruit tree, you bear fruit. Uh, You know how hard it is for a weed to try to get an apple out? That's what happens in an unchanged human who doesn't have the Holy Spirit inside. It is us trying to bear fruit when we're a weed and somebody's demanding an apple. But if he changes us to an apple tree, how hard is it for an apple tree to bear apples? It's what they do naturally. What used to be impossible as we are clean and we rest in him and we just wash All of a sudden, we bear holiness that looks just like Jesus when we could never do it by working as hard as we possibly could. Listen to God. He's saying this. No merit, no earning. Here's my plan. I'm just generous. I have amazing grace. And when you finally lay down all of your own efforts to be good, and when you're finally willing to receive the free gift of grace, and then I will make you truly clean, and I'll fill you with my Holy Spirit, and I will make it possible for you to live like my son. But it won't be because of your effort. It won't be because of your work. It'll be because I've purified you through and through. And when I do that in you, you'll be delivered from your hopeless attempt to make yourself good enough. And you'll live into the greatness that I've made you for. You will be free. You will be clean. You will be exactly who you've tried to be. Now let me point something out here. You can get to the end of these messages and what you have is an unsaved wayward son who gets saved. And you have a, a pagan that comes from Aram who gets saved. But in my experience, there are a lot of people in the church who understood the gospel to get saved by just washing. And then the whole Christian life is trying to be like Naaman. Do great things for God so I can please him now as a believer. Let me describe this as I close. Josiah, come on up. I'd like each of us to take this opportunity to respond to what we've heard today. First, in a group of this size, there are certainly some who haven't really given your life to Christ. But think about this. If you aren't hoping in His grace and forgiveness, then you're hoping that you're good enough to pay for the things that you've done wrong. The very fact that you showed up to church may be how you're paying for what you've done. That's not the gospel. See, if you're doing that, this means that you have to achieve. It means that you have to try to be good enough. It means that you're counting on your performance. It means that you're going to try to win God's favor by your own effort. Think about it this way. Even if you don't think of yourself as a self-righteous person like the older brother, you're still counting on your own actions to make you good enough for the Father to bring you back. And just like Naaman, you're doomed to try to do great things to earn God's favor. Do you realize what a horrible life that is? If you don't know Jesus, but you know you ought to be good, do you realize what a miserable life that is? 
because you will fail at being good. We all do. What a miserable life. You see, we all know that we're not like Jesus. He's perfect, and we're not. And we know that we'll never be. And we know that God expects us to be like Jesus. And so people who try to be good enough for God will always be caught in a hopeless trap. You can't tithe enough. You can't give enough. You cannot do enough to be clean. But the Father is saying, I love you and I'm generous. Just come home. The Father is saying, stop trying to earn my favor. Just be honest about your sin and your inadequacy. And then, just wash. Now there's a second kind of person here this morning. I've already alluded to them. Most of us here are probably believers. And we've heard and received the message of God's grace. And we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. But there's a common pattern that can happen among believers. At some point in the past, we heard the gospel, we repented of our sin, and Jesus forgave us by pure grace. But then, in many believers' lives, something happens over time. Now that we're saved, we think we have to work hard at being good. The Bible has all through it. Be good. (laughs) And we were saved by grace, and now we think, okay, now that I've been saved by grace, i got to work to be holy. We accepted the salvation, but we still think we have to earn his favor by our spiritual achievement. And so the Christian life can also be a miserable treadmill of hard work. And I think I'm probably talking to some here. We come to him by grace, but then we fall into the trap of trying to, you ready? We're trying to stay with him by performance. We got in by grace, but we're trying to keep him happy by performance. So having been born into the family by unmerited love and favor and forgiveness of the Father, we then start living our Christian life by trying to strive to be good, by striving to perform, by working to earn the Father's ongoing love. So notice, both people that I've talked to, the non-believer is counting on their goodness by deciding that they don't need Christ. But there are also many believers who are mistakenly counting on their own goodness as well. Not to get saved, but to produce holiness after they get saved. To draw from the theology of Naaman's story now, listen, don't miss this. They think that they have to do some great thing to keep God's favor. But holiness, church, will never come by our effort It comes when we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us with His righteousness. He does the saving by grace, but listen, church, He does the sanctifying by grace. Some of you grew up in the wrong Nazarene church, and what you heard was, you're saved by grace, and then you are made holy by working as hard as you can for the rest of your life, and I suspect there are some sitting here who have failed for decades to be holy. Because what God, I remember your preacher about 18 years ago preaching a message at Crossroads. And he said, God didn't come to make you good. He came to make you dead. 
And as we are crucified with Christ, it's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So notice, he does the saving by grace and he does the sanctifying by grace. Just wash. Just rest. Let him do the amazing work. So believers, listen to the message of our generous God. Just wash. And unbelievers, listen to the message from our generous God. Just wash. Please stand with me, church. In a moment, the altars will be open. They'll be open for the first kind of person, right? Those who have tried to be good enough for God through your own efforts. But this morning you realize that you'll never be able to do enough good things to merit your salvation. The altars will also be open for a second kind of person, though, and it may be plenty of us. The one who came to Christ by grace, but you realize that you're still trapped in the attempt to make God happy and retain his favor by striving to be holy in your own effort. You know one of the great tragedies in the church is? There are a lot of unbelievers that think God is a better father than some believers. Because some believers, having come to him by grace, now see him frowning because you can't be good enough even as a Christian. And he's saying, church, just wash. Just come to my water and wash. To both kinds of people, listen to the good and generous Father. Come home. I'm waiting for you with open arms. Rest in my righteousness. Rest in my goodness. Rest in my generous unmerited grace. So this morning... Whether you've served God for many years or you've never known him at all, if you're tired of trying to earn God's favor, if you're tired of trying to be good enough, then come and lay down your striving. Come and lay down your toiling. Come and just wash.